0: Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today my guest will be the Reverend Deb Richardson-Moore, better known as Pastor Deb, and we'll be talking about her program at Triune Mercy Center, and the book she has written that's pretty much a memoir and journal about that ministry, entitled The Weight of Mercy, A Novice Pastor on the City Streets. It is a gripping story, a very personal story, sometimes a raw story, but Pastor Deb and her work at Triune Mercy Center have had a tremendous impact on the Greenville community. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Production of today's episode of Walter Edgar's Journal was made possible in part by a grant from the Jolly Foundation. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today we're on the road in Greenville and we're at Triune Mercy Center. We're going to talk today with Pastor Deb Richardson-Moore, who has made a real difference in this city, and she's also written a book, The Weight of Mercy, A Novice Pastor on the City Streets. Deb, we got your book through our mutual friend, Pat Job, who said, <laughs> he sent it to Alfred, and he said, you know, Walter needs to read this book. I had no idea the kind of ministry that you had here.
1: Yeah, Pat's been a very good friend to us.
0: Okay. 10 years ago, you were a reporter for the Greenville News, trying to keep our friend Jim Hammond in line and other things. <laughs> and then you decided to go into the ministry. How did that come about?
1: Boy, it was a long, drawn-out process. I was had been a reporter for 27 years and was writing religion. My editor had, had asked me to take on the religion beat. And I said, well, um, I am want to go try to get a master's degree and and what I meant was comparative religion to learn about Buddhism and Hinduism and Mm -hmm. all the other faiths moving into Greenville but nobody had that Furman didn't Clemson didn't and so I ended up in a seminary down in due west South Carolina Erskine Mm -hmm. and when in the very first class I took was intro to the New Testament and it was like oh my gosh I've always wanted to know this stuff. I've always wanted to know where the Bible came from and didn't even know I wanted to know it, didn't know how to go about finding it out, even if I had known, but I was just mesmerized. And so I began a three-year process, really, of looking at, am I supposed to be the religion reporter for the Greenville News, which I thought very very likely or possible, Mm -hmm. or am I supposed to go into ministry? And through a long process of prayer, um, decided finally I needed to leave the newspaper and get mm-hmm. finish my MDiv uh, in a more timely manner and go into ministry.
0: MDiv being Master Divinity. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you get support from your denomination?
1: Oh, no, no. Uh, I was Baptist. And when I started, I was in the Southern Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. And when I started seminary, my family left that church and went to First Baptist Greenville which is not Southern Baptist was much more welcoming to women and it really I just thought well this will be fine we had women on our staff at First Baptist and I just I think was a little naive about being a minister in the Baptist faith.
0: Once you got your degree you had some counseling from the pastor there didn't you at First Baptist about or someone about looking for a job.
1: Oh no that was uh, that was really somebody in your neck of the woods that was a chaplain in the um, Department of Corrections, whom I had dealt with uh, as a newspaper reporter. And he had uh, written to me when I was in seminary and said, okay, well, uh, because his job was to be a liaison between the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, which is a more moderate branch of the Baptist, and new seminarians uh, who were graduating. And so, yes, I came down to Columbia and met with him. And in all honesty, he told me, you know, we support women in ministry. We send resumes. But to be honest with you, the search committees um, often just throw the women's resumes into the trash can and look at the men's.
0: Then you had to figure out what you spent the last three years doing, what you were going to do.
1: You know, well, by that time, it had been five and a half years. Oh, okay. It's, yeah, because by the time, you know, because I'd worked part-time. and Oh, I, I, was, I was absolutely devastated. I remember going down to the Columbiana Mall, and uh, I, I was actually numb after that meeting. And sitting there getting a, a glass of iced tea and sitting in the middle of the concourse as people walked by mm. and thinking, what have I done? What have I done? I have turned my family upside down. We had actually sold stock to uh, support ourselves. We had two children in college, one coming behind them. What in the world have I done? And I'm not going to get a job now.
0: How did you end up at Triune?
1: Well, uh, one of my seminary friends went to Buncombe Street Methodist Church, and she was my age. She Mm -hmm. was a much older student as well, second career. And they assigned her, because Triune was undergoing a lot of changes. It had gone from a Methodist church to a non-denominational church. And Buncombe Street had stepped in to sort of take them on as a satellite mission. And they sent her over to be the student pastor here. So as we would ride back and forth to Erskine, she would talk about this place. And to me, it sounded like the gospel. She would tell me about the homeless people who came in and ate dinner here and worshiped, and then she knew they were going back out onto the street at night. And I knew she had a few of the elderly remnant of this church, um, 80-year-old white congregation. And I just thought, oh, my heavens, that's what the gospel is supposed to look like.
0: Triune originally, this was a working-class neighborhood? Was that our middle-class neighborhood?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, middle class, uh-huh, a railroad community. Mm-hmm. They, I understand they were up to about 700 members mm-hmm. at some time in the 1900s. huh.
0: And then people moved out, mm-hmm. the neighborhood changed.
1: Yeah, uh, we are on the, the edge of Poe Mill. Poe Mill crumbled, mm-hmm. drug dealers moved in, prostitution, and the people began to flee from the church. Mm-hmm.
0: I heard you once describe this here with the Salvation Army just down Rutherford Street a homeless shelter, you called yourself the Homeless Triangle?
1: Yeah, actually the police called us that uh, when, when I first got here. Yeah, we're two blocks from the Salvation Army, which shelters men and women, and then we're about three blocks as the Crow Flies from the Greenville Rescue Mission, which shelters men. And so the police said we made sort of a lopsided triangle, and they call this the Homeless Triangle, and they said a lot of the homeless people live within the boundaries of it, because of our services, now I think what what also drives a lot of that is um, there were four day labor places, and I think to me that's what really drives where the homeless congregate.
0: You say were,
1: yeah, um, I, and I couldn't even tell you how many are still here. Um, the The city has been getting a little aggressive with uh, as the leases expire. Mm-hmm of uh, not having all those in one area, but some of them have just moved right across the county line, which is just three or four blocks west of here. So they're still nearby, but they're not all right in this so-called homeless triangle anymore.
0: Okay, that explains what triune is. How did you get here?
1: Oh, Well, the, the pastor that I mentioned left She kept on, but she moved to chairman of the board, so they were looking for a pastor. So
0: so this is an organization that has its own self-governing?
1: Right, right. And most of the the board members are from our partner churches. you know. So they've already had an interest here, their support. Now we've uh, grown so much that we're actually pulling about a third of our board members from our own worshiping congregation on Sunday mornings. But at that time, it wasn't. Nobody from the congregation would have been on there. But anyway... When she left, she became chairman of the board to try to find a pastor before, you know, she she just left entirely. And um, she said, why don't you apply? And I said, well, I'm not a Methodist. And she said, well, it's become non-denominational. I think they would consider you. And so I applied, and much to my surprise, they were willing to take a chance on a Baptist.
0: Okay. Your first Sunday here.
1: Oh, Painful. You had Mm -hmm. been
0: given some advice on things you were not, you were not supposed to do. (laughs) You weren't supposed to give anybody money Mm -hmm. and you weren't supposed to get in a car with anybody and Mm -hmm. go off Mm -hmm. and you fell for some sob stories.
1: That's right. That's right. And to this day, I don't know how that man knew that that was the first day. Of course I might've fallen for that for the first six months. But yeah, a very nicely, neatly attired man came right after the service, 12 o'clock. Stood out on the steps, said, Pastor, I need your help. Um, I'm a pastor down in Lawrence, and I I was bringing my youth group up to sing at a a service in Simpsonville, I believe he said. And uh, we are late. My van broke down. And so I thought he was asking for a bus or something. And I said, well, we don't have a bus. And he said, I've called a taxi and it's going to cost $23.60. Can we have help from your offering plate? And I said, well, well no, but um, I'll run to my, get my purse. And, and, and took out literally $23.60, came and handed it to him and asked my husband and daughter if they could take him to his broken down van. And they put him into our car and took him off.
0: And he didn't have a broken down van. He
1: did not. <laughs>
0: okay. Now, how did, it, how did it feel when it came home to you that you had been suckered?
1: Oh, like I'd been punched in the stomach. You know, just, uh, you know, anger at him, anger at myself for my stupidity.
0: Well, you know, as an editorial aside, one of the things that is so refreshing about your book is you don't mind telling people about the mistakes you're making. <laughs> uh, I mean, Deb, all too often when people write about, let's just say, the good deeds I have done, <laughs> they don't talk about the missteps that have, have, have occurred.
1: I wouldn't have a book if I tried to leave the mistakes out because it's a lot more mistakes than not.
0: Well, uh-huh. when you came here, this was only going to be a temporary job, right? A one-year oh, job.
1: Oh, I, I, w- I was leaving. I was leaving.
0: Why? I thought you were, had a calling to come here.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, God and I wrestled with that one. That's the thing. You know, you think you are being called. Like I say, three years of prayer, you know, that I I think this feels right. This is what I'm going to do. And so finishing school, all, you know, all this investment of time and energy leaving my journalism career and then getting here and like, oh, my gosh, I, I surely was hearing this wrong. nobody
0: yeah and not only that bad first day experience the first night the burglar alarm goes off you got to get up you and your husband get up and come down
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and that happened pretty regularly oh
1: yeah Uh, it was going off all the time Mm -hmm.
0: so when did it start to feel right
1: Mm. that's a real good question um by by january i had started in august by that first january i had hired um alfred johnson who was a former paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne. And he was an ordained Baptist pastor as well. And he had such a calming presence here. So that helped immensely. And then in January, we were joined by David Gay, who was a retired engineer from Floor, And he was going to attempt to get folks into drug rehab because that was, that was what happened. I was looking out over the soup kitchen, which was our kind of main ministry then. Yeah,
0: the three things y'all did, you had a soup kitchen. Was that just on Sundays?
1: Uh, no, no, no. It was, boy, at that point, it was five or six times a week. Okay. Yeah.
0: And you had a, an adult clothes closet. Right. And what else?
1: Uh, food pantry. Food pantry. Gro- groceries, yeah. So, but we looked, I looked out and I, I would see all these people and I thought, well, everybody in here is either on drugs or alcohol and living on the streets. Why are we treating that with food and and clothes? And so we hired David to get to sort of try to to deal with that. The, and so it was shortly after those two came, things got immensely better. But I still just didn't like it very much. I was still thinking, I don't know that I want to stay here after a year.
0: You had staff problems.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: One of your staff was an addict. Mm-hmm. And it, it took some tough love to make that call.
1: Yeah, but yeah, it did, because this was a man that I very much felt for. He had become addicted after um, a horrible industrial accident, had gotten addicted to prescription pain meds, and the previous pastor had given him a job here, and uh, understanding that he was clean, and had helped him find an apartment, so we were, we were really bending over backwards to help him, but it just became clear um, that he was still using you know, falling down on the job and actually went into seizures one time. And so, so that really, it, that was pretty clear cut to me um, that I asked him for a drug test, and he refused, and so he resigned. Okay.
0: All right, you're, you're here six months. You're still trying to figure out what you're supposed to do. But you, you've identified a key problem, and that is mental illness, mm-hmm. which since the 1980s in this state and everywhere else, We no longer have many people at the state hospital. And then you have people who have addictions, whether it's drugs, alcohol, what have you. You're not trained for that.
1: Oh, absolutely not.
0: But you found somebody. You had actually a volunteer. Did he not volunteer?
1: No, no. We hired him. You a grant. Got a grant and hired him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Had you been taught to write grants?
1: No, no. Uh, Had a woman come in after I had been here about two months And she said, "Uh, I am a professional grants writer, and I feel God calling me to write grants for you pro bono. And to this day, she writes grants for us. She has brought in hundreds of thousands of dollars. She's been my chair of the board. Wonderful woman. And so when she rolled off the board, I said, well, you're not going to stop writing grants, are you? And she said, well, I guess I can't quit until God tells me I can.
0: (laughs) So all of this is just kind of coming together. Did that that tell you something?
1: It does. It does. Because I have never been one to think that God reaches down and manipulates and makes these changes. But I tell you what, you can't be here long without feeling something supernatural, spiritual is going on. Some of the people he has brought to us, my, my new music director, oh, my heavens. I, I could not have envisioned a music director with a heart for the homeless, a knowledge of sacred music, a knowledge of rock music. In one service, we will have everything from an organ Bach piece to Bob Dylan, and he does it all. And he pulls together a choir, a gospel band, a you know, and rock musicians.
0: Now you have a real congregation here, right?
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. This isn't just a homeless shelter. This is, oh, an no. act, this is an active, non-denominational congregation.
1: Now we're not even a shelter. Period. Did you realize that?
0: No, I did not. Yeah, know.
1: yeah. Nobody stays here. Okay. This is a church, and uh, I don't think we could ever bring this building up to code to have people live here. So no, nobody lives here. It's just all sorts of, you know, six days a week of just all sorts of activities and well, worship.
0: But when you came here eight years ago, there were not activities six days a week. Oh,
1: no, 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 no.
0: You had your food pantry on like, you know, one day a week. And right. your, your clothing one day a week. And then were feeding folks. Right. Three meals a day or just one meal a oh, day? Oh,
1: no, no. Uh, I think about five, five meals a week. And then I think we went to six meals a week. But it was always we always had a Saturday lunch and Sunday evening dinner. Those have been the staples, and then other meals have kind of come and gone. Right now we're doing we're all, we're down to three, mm-hmm. and that is by design.
0: Now why is that? Because I know in in Columbia, where a lot of things are being debated about the homeless, there are several churches that do, like Washington Street Methodist has a soup kitchen every day. Trinity Cathedral feeds sunday breakfast and prepares lunch for folks to go out and they're supported by the way by other churches but they're ad hoc somebody will decide to feed in finley park and somebody does this and somebody does that a lot of folks are doing it and this is this seems to be the first thing people think about when you're dealing with the street people as the Mm -hmm. term is sometimes used in Mm -hmm. columbia is let's feed them Mm -hmm. that'll take care of the problems Mm -hmm. but that's the problem
1: exactly and and that's a hard lesson to learn and that's you know food is where everybody gravitates to when triune was opened as a mercy center in 1989 the church was in decline and the the pastor at that point said well let's at least try to reach out to the homeless people who are now living around us at that point our soup kitchen was project host uh, which is down on academy And it was only open on weekdays. So he logically opened a weekend soup kitchen. That's how Triune Mercy Center started. And to the genius of his plan was he invited other churches to come in and help. I think if he had not done that, this would be a gas station today. But from 89, you started having a lot of our strong churches in town uh, sort of having some buy-in to Triune and homelessness and learning from that point. However... By the time I got here in 2005, the situation had changed. And we started looking around how many many meals were being served. You can eat free in Greenville three to five times a day. And so at that point, we said, whoa, feeding more meals is not the answer. If we're going to really seriously tackle homelessness, throwing more food at it is not the way to go. But that's what we face to this day. Churches setting up across the street. Just Sunday, um, we were feeding our Sunday evening meal. We had Holland Park Church of Christ in here. They are very good partners. They had cooked a hot meal. We got a knock on the door. And this ministry says, oh, we're handing out lunch bags in your parking lot. And I had to say, please don't do that. We have this church as a long-standing partner. They are, they've cooked bought this food cooked and served it and if they see all this other food they're going to start thinking well we don't need to be here so i think people just don't think or they don't think very deeply about it
0: it's perhaps the journalist in you and 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 not the pastor but there was a a wonderful story of as you are you know serving and somebody coming well we want to do thanksgiving dinner Mm -hmm. and your comment to this person who came is (laughs) You know, there are 364 other days of the year where people might be helped and not just make a big whoop- to-do about yeah. serving Christmas or Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. It's, some people make that a big deal, but then you don't find those same folks working with the soup kitchen. Okay. the rest of the
1: That's right, The rest mm-hmm. of the year. Mm-hmm. But in their defense, Walter, I have to tell you, that's how I started, back years and years ago. You know, when I was a young mom raising children, that's when it would come to me, okay, now we need to do something for Christmas, Somebody, something for someone for Christmas. I don't know why we think that way, but that's just how we start usually.
0: Can you still be fed three times a day? In-
1: yeah, if you're willing to walk, mm-hmm, you sure can. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: At one point you had a, a Sunday meal and you expected people to come to church if they got fed, right?
1: Yeah, what we did was we changed our, because we had uh, completely divorced food and worship. Originally, when I got here, they were giving groceries out after the Sunday evening service. And I just didn't like that. People were coming to service just to get the groceries. So we we cut that out and just made the groceries completely separate on Wednesdays. But what happened with our, we instituted a Sunday lunch. And what was happening was while we were worshiping, people were um, coming out smoking on the sidewalk Sitting around on the walls, you know, just waiting for lunch. Mm-hmm. And I just, that, the more I watched that, I just thought, this is not right. And I just sort of made a decision that that lunch was going to be a congregational lunch for everybody in the congregation. Plus, it was a good opportunity to bring in middle class and impoverished people into community. So you don't only sit next to each other and worship, but now you're coming and having a meal together. So I went out on the sidewalk, and I said to these people, you know, uh, you've been coming in late. Uh, we're, we're going to change this, and this is going to become a lunch for our worshipers. Now, I want you to come in and worship. We want you to worship with us. But if you don't, this meal's not going to be available. And they said, that's fair.
0: <laughs> you didn't get any preaching back at you?
1: No, not a bit. Where I got my preaching back at me was from three of my middle class congregants who said you are getting on a slippery slope of requiring you know and I agree and I agree and and we sat down and talked it out but I said I think um I just quite frankly was irritated at seeing people smoking out um while we were in worship and then just sauntering in to lunch and that's that's not a very theological argument but that's all I had
0: well, let's let's talk about this mix of a congregation, because yeah. you had, as you mentioned, some very elderly folks who had hung around, mm-hmm. but over time you attracted younger people from different denominations to yeah. come start worshiping with you.
1: And you could have knocked us over. That nobody was more surprised than me when that started happening.
0: How did that happen, I mean?
1: <sighs> Guys, it's hard to even remember who who was first. Of course, my family began coming here, mm-hmm. And, and my extended family, you know, so husband, children, and then mom and dad, and then brother and sister in law and niece. Furman students began coming. My husband works at Furman, and somehow they started getting interested. So we started having Furman students. Then we just started having people who heard about us, people visiting from our partner churches, people who lived in these neighborhoods. Because while there's a lot of homelessness here, there's also, we're sitting in the middle of some of Greenville's high price neighborhoods, you know, very exclusive downtown addresses. And so they started coming. And in the fir- the early days, I would almost have to just stop myself from saying, what in the world are you doing here? But when I did ask, why are you here? What brought you here? Inevitably, the answer was, I think this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And people were coming expressly because of the diversity. So now... We uh twice in August we had over three hundred in worship, which just about fills that that uh, sanctuary
0: August in South Carolina, most churches even have a, a Sunday schedule so instead of having three services on Sunday morning they only, they go back to two so uh, they get but three hundred on an august sunday
1: I know, I know
0: that's that's incredible
1: well I, yeah, I can't explain it, but if I was parsing it out, I would have said probably twenty five percent. Of, of those people were literally homeless, living under our bridges, you know, mm. around in here. 25% were probably struggling, working class poor maybe, mm. and 50% middle class.
0: In, in reading the public debates about what to do about homeless, you always wonder in terms of bringing those folks together because let's just be honest, they may, be, they may have alcohol in their breath,
1: We've had mental illness. We've had a woman who won't let anybody sit near her, who lives on the street, and that's a real problem because as that sanctuary fills up, there's not seats to have one whole row with a person. And she has actually snarled at people when they try to get on her pew. Mm-hmm. But you just have to, de- you know, you, when you come into Triune, you know what you, you, know, you know. That that's why you're at Triune.
0: Well, I I guess perhaps the difference is this is not—this is their church that you, the middle-class person, are coming to, as opposed to this is the middle-class church with one or two homeless people coming in to to participate in the work And I can
1: guarantee you that's the difference, because um, this church faced a long, long, long decline, and when that decline really went into high gear was in 1989 when that pastor invited— all the homeless folks into the dining hall, then there really began an exodus. So by the time I got here, there was nowhere to go but up. So I don't take any credit for being brave or trying something new or anything like that, because there was nowhere else to go. And the 40 homeless people, well, and about six people who had, had never left, that was it. And so who I feel for is pastor's who are trying to convince a congregation to welcome the homeless inside their walls because you're going to get resistance, you're going to get people leaving, and that's a very painful place to be. And that's a shame that it can't be shared because I think one of our most powerful hours of the week is after worship, um, about half the folks come in and eat now. And that was a hard sell getting my middle class people in here because they said we don't want to take food away from somebody. And I said, believe me, your presence is more important than the food. We'll get the food. So say we had 280 in worship, 140 will come eat. And the relationships that I see forming now are priceless because you're getting really in-depth relationships between homeless people and middle-class folks. Okay.
0: Deb, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and we're on the road in Greenville. We're at Triune Mercy Center and the study of Pastor Deb Richardson-Moore. Deb, when I first got here, you gave me a tour of the building. In your book, The Weight of Mercy, you talk about the facilities. Yes, there was a pastor's study, sort of, but you've got an art room. You've got several conference rooms, but everything is sparkling and neat and clean. (laughs) And when you came here, you had plowed over the windows. The plumbing did not work.
1: Right. ceiling fell on us twice.
0: One of the things that I found really fascinating is those being ministered to then began to be a part of the solution to these problems, not just...
1: Oh, absolutely. Not just
0: taking a handout.
1: Absolutely. No, and that has been... The most beautiful piece is, um, well, first of all, back to the beginning of your question, I believe philosophically and theologically probably that when we are surrounded by beauty, our behavior improves. And they've done studies that if a place is trashy and graffiti filled, the behavior of the the residents goes down. So I wanted to surround people with beauty. And I wanted to say through that, you're worth it. You're worth making this place beautiful. Secondly, the folks we were ministering to began coming in to volunteer, and they wanted to work. I don't know if you noticed um, when you came in today, there are probably five to eight homeless volunteers working downstairs, unloading groceries. Um, They helped Don go pick up the groceries. They're just around here working. They weed the flower garden. They work in the vegetable garden. And they're the ones who, who, by and large, painted all these rooms, helped us lay carpet, tile, uh, laminate floors, did, you know, a lot of work we had to have professionally done, but a lot of it uh, we could use our own folks. And that has just given them such a boost in self-esteem. As you can see, my office is filled with original artwork that that the artists have made in our art room, and all of these have said pastor we want this in your office cuz i wouldn't take anything otherwise uh, i'd have it out in more public places but they'll say this is this one we want in your office so everything we can think of to help raise people's self-esteem to remind them of who they used to be whether it's art music gardening that's what we use
0: you see i think that's another interesting component to your to your story is that these people weren't all born in poverty.
1: Oh, no, no, not at all.
0: In fact, some of them clearly were not just middle class, they were upper middle class. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, they have mental illness, Mm -hmm. addiction, Mm -hmm. they fall into where they are. That's right. But how did you decide that art would be something?
1: Oh, I didn't decide. There are so many ministries we have here that are here because somebody came to us, and here again, I see the Lord at work, and said, you know what I could do for you? Now, when somebody comes to me and says, you know what you need to do, I turn off my ears. I'm like, I don't need to do anything. Now, if you want to do something, and same uh, it's been a long time, about six years ago, an artist came to us, and she said, could I bring in some art supplies down into the dining room on Sunday afternoon and just start letting people do art, and we said, sure, and that is one, a a place where I will give us credit. We are uh, glad to try anything. Now, we fall on our face a lot, but if something makes sense, we will give it a try. So, she started coming in for about six months. She might have two people one Sunday. She might have 12. Well, after about six months, she said, well, you know, this dining hall is awfully chaotic. Could I have another room? So we said, sure. We gave her that room you saw, big, bright Sunday school room on the corner with lots of windows. And she came in, and they painted the walls, and they just went to work. And it's open three days a week. Anybody can come in. You might find Furman students. You might find homeless folks. Anybody and everybody is welcome in that art room.
0: And and they're not art classes. No,
1: Mm mm-mm. They just, just let them go.
0: And you also mentioned that you have a quiet room, a library. You call yeah. it your library. Yeah. Where on Sunday afternoon you went up there and there were eight folks sitting there reading.
1: Uh-huh. That was one of the sweetest sights I had ever seen. Uh huh. And, <laughs> and
0: part of that is this was their oasis from the chaos of, this, of their world.
1: Yeah, because I have to tell you, uh, the streets, whoo, boy. These streets are just violent. Uh, the stealing, the um, physical violence, the rapes. Right before Sunday service, uh, just two days ago, um, we, one of our members stabbed another with a box cutter um, across the street. Not on the church property. They were over in a fast food restaurant across the street and got into a fight. Now, there, I will tell you, there was severe mental illness involved but, but that is life on the streets. I'm happy to say that is very, very, very rarely brought onto the church campus. I think everybody realizes this is the Lord's house.
0: You had situations early on where you and your two-person staff, particularly your right-hand man, Alfred, yeah. mm-hmm. had to lay down the law and say, this is not, you can't do that.
1: Oh, absolutely. And we almost don't even have to do that anymore. We had a, an off-duty police officer Ooh, gosh! For, for probably four years, at our biggest meal, we don't even do that anymore because it because so many of the homeless now consider this their church, and they don't let anybody get out of line. And so, if anything starts, they're coming to us before it gets out of hand.
0: You grew up, Deb, as in a comfortable middle class home. Oh yeah. And all of a sudden, you're in a world where every four letter word is tossed at you. <laughs> Uh, If I'm
1: not saying them myself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Had to be a culture shock. I mean, you know, you're down here, not quite 24-7, but almost, (laughs) and somebody is screaming obscenities at you because you didn't do (laughs) what they thought you should have done for them.
1: Yeah,
0: well. You don't look like you've got that tough of skin.
1: I I don't. I get my feelings hurt. But I think the best training for this, and I tell people, wasn't... Well, it, well, journalism. You know, you you kind of hear, you, you kind of hear your share of four-letter words there, but I think parenting was my biggest training ground. You know, by the time I got here, I'd raised three teenagers, and you know, you they they'll bring you down to earth. And so I don't know, it, it not not a lot shocks me, but I have to tell you this: you might be surprised at how much that pastor title and that robe, because I do robe up makes a difference. People, it, they know they're in the presence of a, of a clergy person. And even though I, do, you know, I say, don't call me Pastor Deb, just call me Deb. Uh, they They will not do it. It's Pastor Deb everything. And I think that they wouldn't say things in front of me that they say in front of each other, that they say to the other staff. So I don't get as much of that as you might think.
0: Let's talk about the staff. Initially, it was you and some folks who help with the kitchen mm-hmm. and the custodial work. Mm-hmm. Then you got your assistant, mm-hmm. and he was with you for how many years before you oh, got sick?
1: Uh, Alfred was here uh, for four years, maybe, mm-hmm. and he still calls. He calls me every week. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And then you you had your retired engineer,
1: and he's still here. Mm-hmm.
0: But he's the one who who figured out how to start putting people together with social services absolutely which whether it's mental health or some kind of rehab program and again you say things just happened Mm -hmm. and he just walked in the door right
1: Uh, i ran into him over at gateway across the street Uh, that's uh, one of our sister agencies that deals with the mentally ill Mm-hmm. And he was he had volunteered after, after uh, retiring, he had volunteered for a year in each social service agency. He had done a year with the Rescue Mission, a year with Salvation Army, a year with Loaves and Fishes, and a year with Gateway. And he ran out of the kitchen, and he had on an apron, and so I thought he was one of their residents. And so I was, like, really nervous, kind of looking around, make, you know, see if there was any staff. And he starts talking, and if you've ever talked to him, he's got a thick, thick British accent, even though he's been in the States for 30 years. And I'm like looking around going, uh-oh, uh-oh, and then he, I heard him say he was a member of Buncombe Street, and so I said, oh, okay, and so I started listening, and he was saying he was about to finish his year there, and he was looking for his next opportunity, and if, what was I going to do for, with Triune? And I said, well, I want to get people out of drugs, and he said, well, would you, you know, and we just started talking, and I said, would you consider coming and helping us do that? And he said, sure. And I was sure he'd be here and gone in a year, but seven years later, he's still here.
0: Obviously, in I'll, our I'll walkthrough today, you've got other staff.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, We and, and I, I don't make any apologies. Uh, most of our budget does go to staffing because these are the folks who are going to help you get you out of homelessness. There's a, two mental health workers. We have just hired, just this week, hired our second mental health worker, a job counselor, and then uh, facilities manager, that, and he's the one who's running all these volunteers through the building and, you know, why you say it looks so good. Um, and then, of course, uh, an accountant to do a lot of our finances. Bon Secours St. Francis Health System, which is our Catholic hospital up here, um, has put a nurse and a social worker who are here full time. And so they are running uh, dental clinics, uh, mammograms. In addition to 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 hooking people up with primary care helping people get prescriptions and then let's see who else oh and then we have a volunteer lawyer two volunteer lawyers a volunteer ophthalmologist who does eye screenings um it's just amazing to us who comes here and offers these incredible services all
0: right let's talk about cooperation because again that to me that's a great sidebar to the the whole triune story because so many times when people are trying to help, they want this to be our project for Church X, or this is what our civic club is going to do, and they kind of want to go on their own. They don't want to necessarily, you know what I'm trying to say? They, yeah,
1: oh yeah, yeah, uh-huh, partner, so uh-huh.
0: It's, it seems to me that you mentioned there are other agencies here in Greenville like Loaves and Fishes and mm-hmm. Gateway and what have you. But y'all don't seem to be competing. You're
1: oh, no, 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 no. We Well, one thing, a lot of us are good friends. Mm-hmm. You know, we've all been here a long time. Um, so there's a lot of friendship among mm-hmm. directors and staff. But, yeah, we all of us involved in homelessness meet once a month at the Greenville Rescue Mission and have lunch.
0: All right, now how many are there here in Greenville dealing oh, with homelessness?
1: I, I couldn't even tell you, Walter. I will tell you. That on any given meeting day of the Upstate Homeless Coalition, there are probably at least 18 represented. Now is that
0: just you say the Upstate Coalition? Is that just Greenville County, or does that include Pickens? It goes
1: st- down to Lawrence. I think it's Lawrence and Greenville. Okay. But these agencies coming for lunch are almost exclusively Greenville. But that's everybody from the homeless division of the school district to veterans. Agencies to Salvation Army Rescue Mission, US Gain Hospital System, Greenville Mental Health, uh, New Horizons Healthcare, and I know I'm forgetting lots. Well, the
0: homeless division of the city school system.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. They ha- they have a woman um, who's hired who does homelessness because they estimate in any given year there're five to s- five hundred to seven hundred homeless school children in our school district.
0: That's staggering, and that's something you never hear much about.
1: Well, and not only that, we're not even seeing them at Triune, we don't think. We don't know where those children are.
0: They're on the street somewhere?
1: No, I don't think so. That's what I'm saying, because we don't see them. They're either doubled up. They're living, you know, motel to motel. They're living in cars, I fear. But I don't think we are seeing them at Triune, because I've gone to Irene in the school district and said, is there a way you can let your school counselors know that we're here? on weekends. I know there's some a few things available. Well, they're going to school and library and that kind of thing during the week. But you know, if they came here on weekends, we would have hot meals and all that. But we just haven't seen that now it's possible they've been in here, we haven't identified Mm -hmm. them. And and we get some families in here on Sunday nights with children. But I can just tell they've got housing of some sort. The the children are just too neat, Mm -hmm. too well cared for.
0: Well, we were looking earlier at a, at a collage of photographs, and, and when you talk about, in your book, about people sleeping under bridges, overpasses, that's not just an expression.
1: Oh, no, no, that's quite, quite literal.
0: And this past Sunday you said you went out to one location and there was 17 people in? On
1: in one section. That, that particular bridge touches down over lots of different places, mm-hmm. And we, there, there's one section that had about 13 people, and then we went over into a whole other section. You have to cross railroad tracks, so they're, they're pretty mm-hmm. divided. And there were, I think they said 17. But just about any bridge, you're going to find people lurking because it's, it's some shelter at least.
0: Mm-hmm. How does the local police, how do they deal with a situation like
1: that? Well, this has been ongoing for I think that bridge was built nine years ago, and in the beginning, law enforcement, because I think it straddles the county line, so it was city police and county deputies would periodically go through there and move people out. And um, this. No. No.
0: When they move people out, do they arrest them, or they just say move on? Uh,
1: move on, mostly. But but on the other hand, it's kind. Of, everything's both Anne Walter. I have found uh, okay. people try to 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 say, is it this or is it this? And it's usually all of the above. Okay. In this case, the police. What I heard, what they told me was, they were getting calls, so many calls down there, drunkenness, violence, stabbings, you name it, that they were. Just, just like a, a nuisance business mm-hmm. that they will eventually close down because they're getting so many calls. It was the same kind of thing. So so they would go through and either e- make arrest if there were outstanding warrants, but if if not, just ask people to move on. Well, this went on for some time. And then I believe what happened is that they realized, you know, this isn't even really our jurisdiction. This is the South Carolina Department of Transportation because railroad tracks are running through there. So then the Department of Transportation got in on it. And if you go down under there now, you'll see big signs they've put up that this is DOT, jurisdiction, uh, no one is allowed to live here. The legislature actually passed a law in the last two years, I believe, that people were not to live under bridges for more than 48 hours at a time that if they stayed under there, they could be liable to arrest. But from what I'm understanding, all the sheriff's offices statewide said, we can't enforce that. How do we know if they've been under there 48 yeah, that, hours?
0: They hadn't checked in.
1: Exactly. <laughs> so, and what they were saying is we would have to post full-time deputies. So I, that, to my understanding, they're still in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. So right now, the latest thing I've seen, just about everybody under there now has a tent. So it's become a sort of more permanent, where it used to just be lying on the ground, mm-hmm. sleeping bags, some structures up under the girders. It's now taking on a more permanent look.
0: You mentioned that uh, the local police chief, aware that mental illness may be part yes. of, the, of the problem, has yes. instituted training for the police force here.
1: She's she's wonderful. Ter- uh, chief Terry Wilfong A lot of her officers are being trained through NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness. Her um, negotiating team came over here. They called and said, could we come and talk to you guys? You seem to be doing good work. So they came over here. When they told us about their NAMI training, we said, oh, can we go get that? So my staff went and got NAMI training last week. National Alliance of Mental
0: Illness.
1: Okay. So we're just trying, because we, the mental illness that we deal with is staggering. That's what I think probably is the biggest thing the public does not realize. They're thinking these people um, are criminals or Uh, lazy and that kind of thing and and I'm not saying some, some of them are but the mental illness I think would surprise people mental illness mental retardation and brain damage that's out on our streets
0: well once upon a time in this state anybody with any of those three categories would have been sent to the state hospital. Absolutely. Or sometimes there were county facilities, but usually it was it was the state hospital. Yes. That doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, yeah. And these people are on the streets. There have been studies, you quoted one in a talk in Columbia a while back that said initially, what was it, 50%, but now they think...
1: Well, no, I was reading 45% mm-hmm. mentally ill nationally mm-hmm. on the streets. You know, and you don't know, are we getting... More because people know there's help here, so we're more mentally ill coming here. But our mentally ill, our, our mental health counselors, boy, they're estimating we're seeing 80 to 90 percent. Yeah, but that's- like I say, Walter, what surprised me was the mental retardation because I really thought, well, wouldn't mentally retarded folks, wouldn't their families still keep them in? Because that's what we see in the middle class when we have. Um, friends with, um, you know, lower functioning folks. They usually live with their parents on through adulthood. Well, we had a gentleman that I thought was a crack addict for six years. He had just been in here. Our friends at the Greenville Rescue Mission had taken him in for an entire year. He still didn't get work. He was here every time we opened the doors. And finally, when we hired our mental health worker in January of 2012, he was one of the first people she sat down with, and she came out of that 30-minute session, and she said, Deb, he's mentally retarded. I was like, oh, my gosh, how did we not see that? But she got him uh, in to see a psychiatrist at Greenville Mental Health, so got the official diagnosis of MR, got him on a disability check, and had him in a brand-new house within three months through you know through our state funding that can do that if you have that diagnosis and he is just doing beautifully I went to visit him in his house at Christmas time and um, he had uh, you could have eaten off his floors as we say that place was spotless he had the couch still in its original plastic with the price tags hanging off and the only thing he had on the walls were the artwork that he had made in our art room
0: now He's a wonderful success story, but one of the things you've learned to deal with is the failures.
1: Oh, goodness, yes.
0: And that must have been hard, too.
1: It still is. It still is. Um, you know, we, you go to someone's graduation from drug rehab. They've, they have worked so hard for six, eight, nine months. Um, you know, you, they, they tell you their plans and their dreams. You hear their confessions, and then the next thing you know, you see them sitting down in the dining room again. And you know in your heart they're back out there.
0: Well, you know, I think the fact that you that there are failures, but you still keep making the effort. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important part of the story because a lot of people say, well, hey, they went off rehab. Mm-hmm. To heck with them.
1: Yeah. Oh, and there are days we feel like that. I have to admit, we're human. Yeah. But we just keep trying to go back to, well, would Jesus give up on us? <laughs> mm-hmm. So we try not to give up on anybody.
0: Deb. Alfred is giving me the, the wind-up sign. So any last words you'd like to give to our listeners who would like to maybe, if not walk in your shoes, at least follow your path?
1: Oh, good. Well, come visit us. We love to have visitors for Sunday worship or just any time. But I guess the thing I would say, if you do want to get involved, go talk to somebody who's already doing the work. Like you said, that you know we don't have to keep creating different agencies. Um, if we can just all come alongside so that's what some of our churches do. They're like, you know, we don't have to recreate this will. How can we help you out?
0: You had a a nationally important visitor, Ruth Graham, came down.
1: <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, she did.
0: To talk to you about how that ministry could emulate something that you were doing. And I think that's pretty spectacular.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, Ruth's a good friend.
0: Pastor Deb Richardson-Moore, I want to thank you today for being with us on the journal.
1: Oh, thank you, Walter.
0: This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know I did. After reading Pastor Deb's book, The Weight of Mercy, I knew I had to go to Greenville to Triune Mercy Center to see for myself the work that this incredible woman has done. Talk about a committed individual And in writing about her journey, almost eight years now, this isn't a hagiography, this isn't a how great I was account. It's a very human story of lessons learned, triumphs, and failures. And it's the story of an individual and a ministry that has made a difference in Greenville, South Carolina. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed by the guests on Walter Edgar's Journal are their own and are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.
1: Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina.
0: Production of today's episode of Walter Edgar's Journal was made possible in part by a grant from the Jolly Foundation.